0: Good evening, let us pray in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. God, our Father, you will all men to be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. Send workers into your great harvest, that the gospel may be preached to every creature and your church gathered together by the word of life and strengthened by the power of the sacraments may advance in the way of salvation and love. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Good evening, and welcome to our conference on the Reformations of the 16th century. I'm Father Scott Newman, pastor of St. Mary's Church and president of the Center for Evangelical Catholicism and we are delighted that you have joined us. 500 years ago this month in the small town of Wittenberg, Germany, a Catholic priest who was also an Augustinian friar and a professor at the local Catholic university did something that almost no one noticed. He offered a list of 95 theological theses for disputation by his colleagues following the well-established method for conducting scholastic debates within the many universities founded and run by the Catholic Church across Europe. This action was not intended by Father Martin and was not perceived by anyone at the time as the beginning of a revolution that would change the shape of Western Christianity and thereby change the history of the world in the last five centuries. But, of course, that is precisely what happened. What we hope to understand a bit more clearly in our few hours together is how and why that happened and what we, who are the heirs of those divisions, are called to do in the service of seeking the unity for which the Savior prayed in the night before his passion and death. When the hour arrived for which he had come into the world, the Lord Jesus taught us in his high priestly prayer that our unity with each other would be an essential witness to the truth of his gospel and a motive for the conversion of others to saving faith in him. While still in the upper room, the supper room, on Monday Thursday evening, the Lord Jesus spoke to his heavenly father of his apostles and of those who would hear the gospel through their preaching and that of their successors. I do not pray for these only, Christ prayed. But also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as thou, Father, art in me and thy in thee, that they may also be one in us, so that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. In the nearly 2,000 years since the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Church has labored mightily to fulfill the great commission of making disciples of all nations. And yet despite that long labor, 80% of the human race still does not know that Jesus Christ is Lord. Perhaps one reason why the proclamation of the gospel has not yet yielded a more fruitful harvest is that divisions among Christians make it more difficult for others to accept the word of God in the obedience of faith. Many of those divisions, of course, opened in the 16th century in the wake of several different movements for reform, of which the Lutheran movement was but one. Such reform movements were a standard part of life in the church from the very beginning. But 500 years ago, something fundamentally different happened then than had happened in the 15th centuries before, and the movement for reform led to the rending and tearing of the church's unity on a vast scale. Ecclesia semper reformanda. The church is always in need of being reformed. This adage expresses a truth that was understood by faithful Christians since the first days of the Christian religion. The church is always, need, is always in need of being reformed because even those who have been born again by water and the Holy Spirit remain inclined to sin and are therefore in need of continuing conversion to an ever deeper friendship with the Lord Jesus Christ by grace through faith, a friendship that must extend with all Christ's other friends and disciples in the worldwide body of believers, which is the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. But what is that church? And where do we find it? Last Sunday was the 36th anniversary of the night in which the Lord Jesus Christ laid hold of my life. And immediately after my experience of transforming and illuminating fire, I asked the friend who was praying with me, a college classmate and a rock-ribbed Calvinist, where do I go to be baptized? And right away I was confronted with this fact. Lutherans aren't Presbyterians, Anglicans aren't Baptists. And about the only thing which they seem to all agree on is that they aren't Catholics. (laughs) That was my personal introduction to the divisions that have vexed Christians for the 500 years since Father Martin raised his voice to insist that nothing contrary to the word of God should ever be found in the church. That is something to which all Christians should assent. But, of course, Catholics and Protestants have differing appraisals, both of what was gained and what was lost in the reform movements that began five centuries ago and led, in addition to whatever blessings, to the several schisms that endured to this day. Now, my friends, it is above our pay grade to heal the wounds of these five centuries. That is a task that God alone can accomplish but it does belong to all of us to seek to understand the causes and consequences of the 16th century reformations. And I use the plural deliberately and in two senses. First, the movements set into motion by Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, Knox, Henry VIII, and others differ in significant ways, both with each other and with the many fractures that followed them. And second, The Council of Trent inaugurated a vast Catholic Reformation that reshaped the life of the Church for over 300 years and set the stage for the subsequent renewals brought about by the First and Second Councils of the Vatican, renewals which even now shape the ways in which Catholics live the Christian faith every day. The Center for Evangelical Catholicism, with the support of our sponsors, including Bon Secours St. Francis, has invited six distinguished scholars, Catholic and Protestant, to share with us their wisdom on these questions, and we hope that in our short time together, everyone will find a renewed commitment to the ongoing and never-ending reformation of the Church and of our own lives through radical conversion, deep fidelity, joyful discipleship, and courageous evangelism. Finally, I turn now to Timothy Nielsen, Director of Christian Formation of St. Mary's Church and Executive Director of the Center for Evangelical Catholicism, who will introduce each of our speakers tonight and tomorrow. TJ?
1: One of the great things about the talks hopefully tonight and tomorrow, is that we definitely live in an era right now where people are losing the ability to have disagreements and actually to be able to do so with charity. There's a bit of a thing I like sometimes like to call squishy ecumenism, which is the well rather than disagreeing and actually being adults about it and having charitable discussion, it's let's just pretend we all agree, which is neither healthy nor good. So we want unity, but unity and truth. And So that's just one just sort of general remark. And then the other general remark, as well, is I was preparing for introducing the different speakers. And the one thing I thought I could just do at one time was say that they are all seriously smart men. Um, That one of the things that we ended up doing was sort of scouring the country for not necessarily, in all cases, the biggest name recognition, but the biggest brains that we could find. um, so our first speaker is no different, and he was actually the first person I thought of when I was trying to find speakers. I have a lot of Presbyterian friends in town, um, and, I, and actually, interestingly, none of them actually were at Second Pres, but all of them I asked, like, who should I ask? And they all said, the smartest Calvinist in town, um, Richard Phillips. And so anyway, Dr. Richard Phillips is the senior minister at Second Presbyterian, which is just a couple miles down the road. And I had lunch with him a few weeks and got to know a little bit of his background, and it's a fantastic story how he had sort of one plan for his life, where he was sort of doing things his way. He had great education, University of Michigan. He was an up-and-rising Army officer, and an MBA from Wharton, um, he, and he was teaching at the United States Military Academy at West Point, which I can imagine is, sounds just like a dream job, to be a professor in a castle. And if you've never actually been to West Point, it's kind of like Hogwarts goes to war. Um, But anyway, it turned out that Lord Jesus had a different plan for his life. And through a conversion experience, Rick turned his life over to where Christ wanted to go. And so anyway, he ended up um, going to uh, or becoming a devout Christian and ended up at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. And from there... He went and worked at on the pastoral staff at 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia um, under the renowned James Montgomery Boyce. And seven years later, he moved down to Florida to be the head minister at 1st Presbyterian before moving here with his wife and five kids to be the head minister at 2nd Presbyterian. Seems like you're going the wrong direction, 1st to 2nd, but um, I don't think it works that way anyway. Um, But on top... All the good that he does within his local ministry, he's widely heard on the radio. Um, he somehow has found time to author 20, over 25 different books. And he's also on the board of the Council of Alliance and Confessing Evangelicals, the Council of the Gospel Coalition, and the Board of Trustees of Westminster Theological Seminary. And he also, together with Philip Graham Ryken, the president of Wheaton College, is the co-editor of the Reform Expository Commentary Series. And I don't, like I said, with five kids, I have five kids, I don't get nearly any of that done. So um, welcome to the stage, Dr. Richard Phillips.
2: Well, thank you, TJ. I hardly recognize myself. uh, It's a joy to be here. I want to give you greetings from your friends at Second Presbyterian Church. I don't think it's two miles down the road, maybe a little over a mile. I was talking to Father Newman, who I just met tonight, and it's not surprising whether we're, no matter how many theological lines we cross, ministers often don't get to know each other because we're so busy in our own congregations, but uh, my children have played basketball here, and so it's a, it's a joy to be here. And I do want to thank Father Newman and the staff of the Center of Evangelical Catholicism for this privilege. Uh, this is actually my first time speaking in a Roman Catholic Church. Uh, I think this dialogue is indeed a fitting way to remember the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Now my topic tonight is on the doctrine of justification, which was one of the principal divisions in the Protestant Reformation. And uh, as we discuss issues that keep us apart, there are good reasons that we should engage in dialogue. We find ourselves today, I don't need to tell you, in the midst of a raging culture war. And it seems as if the forces of darkness are the ones on the advance. And, And so in that kind of context, It is natural for us to consider where we have beliefs and values in common. And in that context, I'm often grateful for the Roman Catholic Church, uh, particularly in its moral witness, its stalwart stand for the sanctity of human life. I want to say to all my Roman Catholic friends here that your Protestant friends are standing with you uh, in the fight for life in our society and uh, for uh, human Dignity and biblical gender norms. Uh, I think more recently of the struggle that I know many Roman Catholics have had, institutions, because of their courageous stand for religious liberty. And we stand with you on that, too. Uh, TJ mentioned I'm on the board of Westminster Theological Seminary. Our seminary voluntarily joined the lawsuit with Belmont Abbey, a Roman Catholic institution, that went to the Supreme Court over the right of religious Uh, Entities to reflect their values. In that case, it was abortifacients in insurance plans. It was our privilege to stand beside Roman Catholics on that fight. Well, I pray, let me say too, I particularly uh, am grateful for the moral influence that has been given by many of the recent popes. There's no doubt that uh, Pope John Paul II, Pope Benedict XVI, particularly were uh, perhaps the most significant figures representing Christianity in terms of a moral witness to society. We're we're counting on you for that to continue. Uh, That moral influence is important. But it's not only in terms of public morals that uh, biblical Protestants see common ground with Roman Catholics. A a similar situation occurs with respect to a number of important biblical doctrines. As you may know, uh, there has been a division within Protestantism growing over some centuries, namely between those who believe the Bible and those who hold to a secular humanism that denies the Bible. And so there are many, many churches that would fly the Reformation flag. I would hold they do so falsely. With, and with respect to them, I have much more in common theologically with Father Newman. Things like the doctrine of the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the necessity of the atonement, the virgin birth, These are denied by many who even would wear the name of Presbyterian. I mean, Presbyterian, Uh, I have more in common with faithful Roman Catholics than I do with liberal evangelicals. Indeed, I took the time to read Father Newman's description of uh, what he is calling evangelical Catholicism. And I found his passion for a lived discipleship to Christ very close to my own ideals, in fact, closer than I will find in much of the, for instance, the broadly evangelical megachurch movement. Uh, does not use the language that Father Newman did about a lived discipleship with the Lord Jesus Christ. I appreciate that very much. Now given the significance of the occasion as we witness 500 years of the Reformation and in light of these shared views and aspirations, I think it does become all the more important for us to delineate the boundaries where the faith of biblical Protestants and that of Roman Catholics differs. If I was to summarize the main headings, if you were to say, what are your problems with Roman Catholic doctrine? I have many, many, but I would put them under four headings. They would be the Bible, justification, Mary, and the papacy. Now I have not been asked to speak on all four of those. My topic tonight is... Sola Fide, justification through faith alone and the Reformation struggle over that doctrine. Now, this discussion will highlight what the Reformers called the material principle of the Reformation. It was the heart of the matter, the substance of the religious doctrine that was in dispute. Now, the standard Protestant criticism of Roman Catholic justification it uh, goes like this, and I'm sure Roman Catholics have heard this. Roman Catholics teach works righteousness. Now, evangelicals are then often surprised when they uh, run into someone like Father Newman, even the way he just spoke recently, because the Roman Catholics, to their surprise, will speak about grace and they'll speak about faith. And it turns out that the actual issue that divides Rome from the Reformation when it comes to how the soul is made right with God, justification, is how is the sinner made acceptable for God. The actual heart of that dispute concerns the nature of the thing. What is justification? What is its nature? That is where the real dispute lies. 15th century reformers like Martin Luther and John Calvin, together with all the great confessional documents of the Reformation churches, all define justification as a judicial act of God, whereby sinners are declared righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. The reform view is that justification is a divine declaration of righteousness through faith in Christ. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, which my denomination subscribes to, says that justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight. Now the key points there are that justification is strictly judicial, it deals with the legal problem of sin, and it is declarative. Justification does not involve God making sinners righteous, but God declaring sinners righteous through faith. Well, on June 22nd, 1546... The Roman Catholic theologians gathered at the Council of Trent, and by the way, Father Newman, I immediately picked up on you saying the the Reformations of the 16th century, because there's what we call the Counter-Reformation, and the doctrine of the Council of Trent looms large after that point. And when the scholars and the cardinals and the theologians of the Council of Trent gathered to discuss justification, which they understood very well, was at the heart of the matter, the first point they came to was this question about the nature of justification. Alistair McGrath summarizes, here's the question, is justification merely remissio peccatorum, the remission of sins, or does it necessarily include intrinsic sanctification through the action of grace within man? In other words, is justification that all important doctrine the way biblically in which the sinner is made right with god is able to be accepted by god is justification declarative or is it transformative does god impute to believers in christ a just status or does god infuse regenerate mankind with a just nature Which one does justification confer? A status or a nature? Well, the reformers taught the former. And the Council of Trent declared the latter. According to Trent's decree, justification, I quote now, is not remission of sins merely, but also sanctification and renewal of the inward man. Now, interestingly, on these subjects, a conservative Presbyterian like me often hears from Less conservative Presbyterians that the Council of Trent is old news. I never hear that from Roman Catholics, because it's not true. Because the Council of Trent was received the papal stamp of approval, and uh, Rome is separatum. Rome never changes. The infallibility of the Church means that that, and not just in a formal way, but a living way, in fact, that quote I read to you is repeated verbatim in the current Catechism of the Catholic Church. Justification is not remission of sins merely, but the sanctification and the renewal of the inner man. Now, the Reformers uh, base their doctrine exclusively on Scripture. And so that raises, when someone like me comes up, after the doctrine is stated, the next thing people want to hear is the biblical basis for it. That's the way uh, a Reformation Protestant is supposed to work. And so what is the biblical basis For our view, the Reformation's view, that justification is not the transformation of nature, but it's the imputing of a righteous status. Well, part of the answer deals with a translation problem in Jerome's Latin Vulgate, involving this word justification. In fact, the word justification comes from the Latin Vulgate. That's a troubling thing, but as as Father Newman pointed out, the Reformers were all Roman Catholic at one point. And so the terminology comes from the Latin, not the Greek or Hebrew. And if you look at the word justification, it has two words together, justus, just, and facere, to make. And so the very term justification, as it's found in the theological uh, lexicon, as, as the word itself is, but particularly in the Vulgate Bible, it means to make righteous. However, in the Greek and Hebrew Bibles, justification pertains not to the making of one righteous, but the declaring of someone righteous. Uh, that word, the, the Hebrew is the verb zadok, it is found in judicial contexts. It is, it is an activity that is performed by judges. Let me give an example from Deuteronomy 25, verses one to two, describing the procedures of judges. Deuteronomy 25, one to two, says: If there is a dispute between men and they come into court and the judges decide between them, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty, then if the guilty man deserves to be beaten, the judge shall cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence. Now notice that the judge did not make the persons either innocent or guilty, but he declared them as to what they were. He administered justice in a declarative manner. Uh, he was not called to improve the guilty, but to beat them in this case, so to, to declare them condemned, and he was likewise to acquit the innocent. And so justifying is a matter of judgment in the Old Testament, not of improvement. You'll see the same thing in 1 Kings 8.32 and 2 Chronicles 6.23. Proverbs 17.15 contains the same logic. He who justifies the wicked and who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Now notice there that the opposite of to justify is to condemn. They were to declare justly. In fact, in Isaiah 50, verse 8, it is God himself who is spoken of as being justified. Now, when God is justified, it is not moral improvement we are speaking of. It is a declaration of his righteousness. Now, that same situation occurs in the New Testament with regard to the dikaio nouns and verbs. Dikaiasune is the word for righteousness. Dikaio is to justify. Now, most notable is Paul's lengthy teaching on justification in the book of Romans, which begins with a statement of what the problem is, and it is primarily a legal problem in the courtroom of God. Romans one eighteen: for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, when Paul goes on then to speak about justification through faith in Christ, he is not there speaking of the moral status of believers. Oh, he cares about that. He's going to get to that. But their legal deliverance, their need to be legally delivered from just condemnation. So in Romans, justification is not a transformative action by which the sinner's nature is altered. Now, that is part of what happens in salvation, but it is not justification. Rather, justification is a declaration of the believer in Christ's innocence before God's justice. Now, if Paul had not made that perfectly clear in Romans chapters 1 through 3, he clinches the argument in Romans 4 verse 5, where Paul states that God justifies the ungodly through faith in Christ. Believers are justified not because they have come, by God's grace, to merit approval, but because they receive a righteous status through faith in Christ. Now, Protestants wonder, given the clarity of the biblical data on this particular question, the first question is the nature of justification. Is it declarative or transformative? The biblical data seems to be crystal clear. And so we say, now, where is the objection to that? Well, the first answer seems to be that at Trent, what was primarily consulted was the Catholic tradition. Uh, One of the differences we're not here to talk about is I don't have the charge of talking about sola scriptura, the Reformation doctrine, that the final answer, the sole authority, is the... The scriptures, God speaking through the scriptures, whereas Rome will, uh, will interpret the scriptures on the basis of the accumulated tradition. And if you read the proceedings of the Council of Trent, most of the debate is on the tradition. And uh, they, they held that view. Uh, that tradition strongly emphasized the transformative nature of salvation, even a transformative definition of justification. You'll find that in Augustine, for instance. And so the Catholic tradition uh, emphasized, prior to Trent, a transformative doctrine of justification. Now, a second reason was that the council erroneously seems to have missed To understood that the reformers were removing moral transformation not only from the doctrine of justification but from the Christian experience altogether. And so, whereas a Protestant might say of a Catholic, "Oh, they believe in works righteousness," a Catholic might say of a Protestant, "They don't believe in works at all." That seems to have been the view of the Council of Trent. They understood that by removing uh, works from justification. Uh, removing the transformative nature of salvation from justification, the Reformers were removing it from salvation altogether. The reality is that the Reformers were merely distinguishing between justification, the declaration of righteousness through faith in Christ, and sanctification, the ongoing process of transformation, spiritual renewal through the Holy Spirit by God's grace. Now for Rome... A justification contains sanctification within it. Whereas the Reformation views the sinner's legal deliverance from the guilt of sin as distinct from his moral deliverance from the power of sin, although we hold that both are involved in the Christian's salvation. Now, the the implications of that foundational difference are immense. Michael Horton writes, the difference between to declare righteous and to make righteous is the difference between a definitive, once-for-all verdict on the one hand and a gradual process on the other. And so on the basis of this doctrine, the actual spirituality, the, 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 the present reality spiritually uh, of a member of one camp or the other will be definitively shaped. According to Roman Catholicism, no living Christian has been justified as a past reality, but is in the process of his or her acceptance with God. For the vast majority of adherents, even death, does not bring justification, but leads to the pains of purgatory. Now, we do know that Rome does not teach that purgatory is hell. I know that very well. It sounds a little like hell to us, but I I, I, I honestly that is not what is believed is going on in purgatory, but rather the cleansing, purging fires that will conclude the process of inward righteousness. Well, how different that is from the immediate justification that is promised in the New Testament. John three thirty-six says, Whoever believes the Son has eternal life. Now, eternal life is the fruit of justification, and notice that it is a present tense possession through faith in Jesus. In Romans 5 verse 1, Paul speaks of a believer's justification as a completed past event, the result of which is a present peace with God. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, justification is not an ongoing process, it is a past-completed event, it has current implications, that is a present peace with God on the basis of our finished justification in Christ. Now, because of these and many other New Testament references... The Protestant reformers believed that for Rome to insist on justification as an ongoing, imperfect process in this life, it had the effect of eviscerating the gospel and crippling the life of spiritual joy and peace that believers ought to enjoy. Now, a common Roman Catholic response argues that this Protestant approach to justification involves God ignobly in a legal fiction. That is, it is charged that the reformers are saying that God declares a person to be righteous when that person is not actually righteous. It is a legal fiction. You have God declaring something that is not true. He's a bad judge, is the argument under the Reformation view. God is declaring righteous uh, one who is not righteous And Martin Luther ran straight into that he he would embrace at least the claim uh, his famous motto was simul justus et peccator i am simultaneously just and a sinner he was not talking about some postmodern confusion in his life he was saying that he was himself sinful but he had a just status now here's the question under the reformation How do we hold that God may be just when he as a judge justifies, that is declares righteous, someone who is still a sinner? And that is what the Reformation teaches. Well, the Reformer's answer is that through faith in Jesus, Christians receive the forgiveness of their sins and are declared righteous. They receive a righteous status in Christ and through faith alone. Now this leads me to the question of sola fide, justification through faith alone. First we've considered what is the nature of justification. Is it declarative or is it transformative? The Reformation says declarative, Rome says transformative. And now we come to sola fide, justification through faith alone. Now let me say that Roman Catholicism believes that justification is by faith. And they understand that and in that faith is the root that is conferred in baptism my source is uh, the Catholic catechism in the Council of Trent so the process of justification begins with faith and that is the the sacrament of faith is baptism and that begins the process the transformational process of justification that will continue throughout life but while Jerome Agrees that justification is by faith. What Rome will not affirm is that justification is through faith alone. That is, faith apart from works. And the Council of Trent, Canons 9 and 12, declare solafideism an anathema. And of course, that has played a large role in the the division between uh, rome and the reformation i was speaking to the president of a of a college that uh, is known to be a fundamentalist college and they they have banned lists are churches that are banned and uh and the, the president of the college says not many people from your church go to our school i said well when you ban people and put them under the ban it does not exactly encourage you know community and fellowship uh, that I, I don't mean to feel sorry for us, but let me just say that we Protestants are anathematized by Rome for the doctrine of justification through faith alone. Now, the reformer's doctrine of sola fide is spelled out by Paul as part of his teaching on justification in the book of Romans, and he starts with a plain statement of the doctrine in Romans three, verse twenty-eight. In fact, if I were to have a single verse. Highlighted for my talk, it would be Romans 3.28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Faith apart from the works of the law. That's what we mean by faith alone. Faith apart from works. Now, I mentioned earlier that Romans 1 begins Paul's teaching on justification by saying the problem is the wrath of God against the unrighteousness of men. That's how it begins. And then he goes on in chapter 2, at the end of chapter 1, to say this is certainly true of the unreligious person. Uh, the atheist, as it were, he says, you know, they actually do know God. They can't help but know God. Creation was made as a way of, of forcing them. It is, God has made himself plain to them, and yet they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So Paul says the irreligious person is actually a willful idolater. But then he gets to chapter 2, he goes, well, let's not stop there. Let's talk about the religious person. Because the religious person also must be justified and cannot be justified by his or her works because their sinful condition (laughs) prohibits them from fulfilling the perfect righteousness that God's law required. And So in Romans 3, verse 10, Paul sums up what is the universal problem. No one is righteous. No, not one. Now, we may treat each other as righteous we may speak in a in a relative way that's a righteous it's a godly person but god in his judging uh, according to the standards of his law there is no one paul says who is righteous now the reason is found in romans three twenty three. all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god and for that reason romans three twenty, by the works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight now, if you're Roman Catholic, you're going, where do these Protestants get this crazy doctrine of justification through faith alone? Roman 3 is a very good place to start. It's stated there by Paul. He says, for that reason, we must be justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus to be received by faith. Now, I do know that Roman Catholics agree that because of sin, that one must only be justified by grace In Christ through faith. But then you get to verse 27, and Paul is insisting that this justification is apart from any merit within us. Then what becomes of our boasting? He asks. It is excluded. And then he speaks, the verse I mentioned. Why is that? Because one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So you're talking about being justified by grace through faith, through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, this is no merit of your own in this. Why is that? Because you're justified not by works, but by faith alone. Now, his primary target, as the following verses show, are proud Jews, who were, of course, very troublesome in the apostolic church, and they, uh, they believed that they were justified by their possession of the law and its ceremonies and its moral attainments. And so Paul asks, is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not God also of the Gentiles? You see, if, if justification is by possession of the Old Testament law, only Jews could be justified. Well then, starting in Romans 4, verse 1, and if you have Bibles with you, I would encourage you to open them. Uh, we're going to look more carefully at Romans 4. Uh, Paul counters the idea of works righteousness by appeal to Abraham. Now since his targets at the time were primarily Jews, you see the value of going to Abraham. He's the father of the Jews. Well, let's look at Abraham's justification. And he says this in Romans 4, 1 to 3. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Well, let me not overly labor this this consideration. Let me make three observations about what Paul says about Abraham's justification in those verses and the ones that follow. First, having stated the principle that Abraham was justified by faith, Paul then goes on to place faith and works into two opposing categories. Why do we believe justification is by faith apart from works? Because Paul himself separates them. Look at verses 4 and 5 if you have them. Uh, Faith and works represent competing ways of justification. Here's what he says. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now, Now there you have two camps, two approaches. One is works, and you're getting what you deserved. The other is faith. What you're receiving is a gift. It's by grace alone, through faith alone. Opposed to merit is free grace in the form of a gift. Well, Abraham, at least, was one who was justified not by working or by believing. That's a helpful way of saying it. Are we justified by believing or by working? Or is it both? Paul says Abraham was justified by believing and not by working. He was justified by faith apart from works, that is, by faith alone. And so Paul, in Romans 4, separates very deliberately uh, faith and works in justification. Now, secondly, notice in verse 5 that Abraham was justified while he remained personally unrighteous. Paul says to so the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Now here again the Roman Catholic teaching that we are justified in as much as we have been made righteous flies directly in the face of Holy Scripture. Against the charge that while well, you're teaching a legal fiction our answer is we're not the ones doing the teaching at all. Paul says that Abraham was justified not by being righteous But by believing, while he was still unrighteous, he was justified. So faith and works are set apart, and Abraham is justified, not because he had been transformed, not because he had become righteous, he was justified when he was unrighteous. Now third, notice that in Romans 4, justification is without reference to the sacraments. That's an important point in this context, since the Roman Catholic Church so greatly highlights the sacraments as the key to the process of becoming righteous. A Roman justification begins with the sacrament of faith in baptism. It proceeds through life on the primary resource of grace. I, I don't think I'm mistaken in this. I don't, I'm not trying to be. I'm sure I'm not. Which is the Eucharist, the Mass. That is the source of grace. But notice that Paul greatly stresses that Abraham was justified as a completed past action uh, irrespective and apart from any participation in sacraments. Verses 9 to 10. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteous. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he was circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. Romans 4, 9 to 10. Now, for Paul, the sign of circumcision, which is analogous to Christian baptism, was, he says in verse 11, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Now, that could lead to a long discussion of the meaning and nature of baptism, which I'd be happy to have, but it'd be a very long evening if I change subjects now. Let me point out to you, you may not know this, but Reformed Christians baptize their children. We baptize infants. But we administer baptism as a sign of the righteousness that is offered through faith alone and not, as the Roman Catholic Church teaches, as the instrumental cause of justification. The Council of Trent calls baptism the instrumental cause of justification. So our views are very different. My point, then, is that Abraham is justified apart from the sacraments. His faith is exercised irrespective of sacramental grace. Now, speaking that way helps to clarify what the Reformation means by faith, Uh, undoubtedly, particularly in the last couple generations. One of the issues in Roman Catholic Protestant dialogues is that the terms don't mean the same thing. And so we say words, oh, there's our words, but they have different meanings. Well, let me tell you what we mean by faith. Faith is trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is trust in his completed work for our righteousness, including his sacrificial death on the cross and his fulfillment of God's law on our behalf. Uh, Paul gives a good description of this kind of faith in 2 Timothy 1.12. I know whom I have believed. It's, it's who I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what I have entrusted unto him. Personal faith in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here is the solus Christus of the Reformation. It is not trust in the church, not faith in baptism, not faith in the Eucharist, not faith in its priesthood. Paul's faith was focused on a person, the Lord Jesus Christ, together with his all sufficient and accomplished work for our salvation. And here's Paul's point. That faith in Christ alone, Paul says, not the doing of works, not the attainment of a certain level of inward moral transformation, not the sacraments. Faith alone is the sole instrument of the believer's justification in Christ. Justification through faith alone, faith apart from works. Paul makes the very same declaration in Galatians 2.16 A person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I mentioned earlier, it's common, I mentioned a couple times earlier, that it's common for Protestants to complain that Roman Catholics believe in works righteousness, that they're trying to be justified by works instead of faith. Now, those who make that claim usually fail to appreciate how carefully Rome actually grounds salvation, and justification particularly in the grace of God and in faith in Christ. So the simple statement, Rome believes in works righteousness, is not an accurate statement as it goes. Some years ago, I interacted with evangelicals who were involved in the Evangelicals and Catholics Together movement. I was on the opposing side from the reform part. I remember I was actually at a meeting where we were discussing uh, the, the people I was with uh, uh, we were discussing the matter with some fellow Protestants who had been there with Cardinal Dulles and, and many others of the Roman Catholic side, and, and they're telling us of the great achievement. I'll never forget being on a conference call and one of the famous evangelicals says, oh, it's been such a great achievement. We've gotten the Catholics to, to, to believe in grace. We've gotten the Catholics to say salvation is by faith. And I was sitting next to R.C. Sproul, if you know anything about R.C. Sproul, who was sitting there like a man doused in gasoline, waiting for a spark to be lit. And when those words were stated, R.C. stands up over the conference call phone and he says these theologically astute words You idiot, Rome has always believed in grace. (laughs) It is no achievement to get Catholics to speak of grace and faith. Moreover, let me say this, I want to say this particularly clearly. The reason why the Reformation is concerned about works righteousness among Roman Catholicism is not because Roman Catholics take work seriously. It's not because of a passion for a lived discipleship. In the Lord Jesus, the emphasis of a life of good works, the fact that Rome emphasizes good works is not the reason why the Reformation sees a justification by works. I took the time to read Father Newman's article on evangelical Catholicism, and I greatly appreciated the passion that he displays for a living discipleship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me quote a little bit from what he wrote, because he specifically denies that Catholics seek to earn the favor of God and be rewarded with eternal salvation by doing good works as opposed to being justified by faith. Instead, he writes, we are saved only by Jesus Christ and his work of salvation is pure grace, the free and unmerited favor of God. Now that, I gladly admit, is nothing less than standard Roman Catholic doctrine. I do not think that he's a radical uh, going out on a limb. That is the Roman doctrine. It is a far cry from simple Pelagianism. Simple works, right? I have the ability in myself to commend myself by good works. I therefore do the good works. God justifies me by good works. That's simple Pelagianism, and that is not what Rome has taught. And yet it remains true that the Roman doctrine denies that justification is through faith alone, denies it so as to put the curse of an anathema upon the Reformation doctrine. And so the reason the Reformation did charge Rome with a works righteousness is because of the way that faith and work combine in justification. Romanism is not Pelagianism, it is semi-Pelagianism. In which grace enables a synergism, whereby the believer cooperates by his works, and his works actively, here's the particular issue, his works actively contribute to justification. Roman Catholic justification begins with faith, through baptism, and is completed by works... As must be the case if we're going to define justification as transformative in nature. Now let me be very clear. These works are all rooted in God's grace. They would be impossible without God's grace. They are conveyed by the sacraments, by the ministry of the priesthood. And yet it's an active cooperation with God. Let me quote the current catechism. The believer is justified in the cooperation of charity with the prompting of the Holy Spirit who who precedes and preserves his ascent. There is prevenient grace. It could never happen without grace. It's all energized by grace. And yet for all the care given to highlight prevenient grace, Roman justification still involves far more than what Augustus Toplody expressed in his famous hymn, it is far more than what Protestants sing, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. The Roman Catholic presents works from his hands, works inspired by, preceded by, preserved by the grace of God, but works nonetheless as an essential component of his justification. Justification. And so while Rome treats faith as necessary to the sinner's acceptance, I would never, do, I, I would never want to deny that's it's true. What it does deny is that faith is sufficient to justify the sinner. Whereas the Reformation sola fide says that faith alone justifies. Now you, wouldn't, you won't be surprised if you know your Bibles that when the Council of Trent was propounding the necessi- necessity of works and justification that they found their way over into James chapter 2. James 2.26, with its vital teaching that faith apart from works is dead. In fact, Roman Catholics enjoy the rhetorical high ground by pointing out, let me just say it first before it's said by one of them, that the only time the words faith alone occur in the Bible, they are preceded by the word Not. Now that is
0: pretty good rhetorical
2: high ground, and I grant that. I think it's only rhetorical, but it is that. The only time the words "faith alone" are found are preceded by the word "not." James two twenty four says, speaking of Abraham, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now that statement so annoyed Martin Luther that he actually tried to excise the book of James from the New Testament. You know, Luther was a was a uh, was a character. Uh, I can say that not being a Lutheran. Uh, Luther was wrong. In fact, he was wrong about James. Because of, despite the surface impression of the words, James actually is not opposing justification through faith alone. What James condemns is, a just, is justification by a faith that is alone. To quote John Calvin, which Calvin famously said, we are justified by faith alone, but not by a faith That is alone. Faith alone justifies, but true faith inevitably does works. Now that was James' meaning. A faith devoid of works is false, and such a faith cannot justify. Well, if we consider James' argument in context, we see that his concern is not to insert works as a contributing component of justification, but rather not to exclude works from the faith that justifies his concern is made clear in the opening line of that section james 2 verse 14 he says what good is it my brothers if someone says he has faith but does not have works you see the question is what constitutes true faith true and saving faith versus a dead profession that will not save Uh, james's question is not the justification of the believer but rather the vindication of the claim to faith. Show me your faith, he says. You show me yours if it has no works. I'll show you mine by its works. So it's about the proving of faith. Now, he, I mentioned that James uses Abraham. Isn't it interesting? He uses Abraham as his point. The same Abraham who, according to Paul, was uh, justified by faith alone. And the episode that James has in view, if you know Genesis 22, is the famous episodes where God commands him to sacrifice his son, Isaac. They troop up to Mount Moriah, and Abraham obeys God, and he is about to slay his son, when an angel stops him and says this, Now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son. You see, the question was the substance of his faith. And the proof of his faith was given by his works. But notice that the angel did not say, Well, now you're justified, Abraham, because you have added works to your faith. Abraham was justified back in chapter 15, verse 6. Abraham was Believe the Lord. And it was credited him as righteousness. The very verse Paul uses for justification through faith alone. James comes along and says, well how do we know his faith was real? His faith was justified by works. That's what's going on in James chapter 2. Now in that sense, and in that sense alone, James writes that Abraham was not justified by faith alone. It was By his works that his justification was proved. Martin Luther liked to use the tree analogy. It's a very good analogy. Jesus uses it. The the fruit is not the source of the life of the tree. It is the evidence of what kind of tree it is. So are works. Now, let me say this. In keeping with James 2, I do want our Roman Catholic friends to rest assured that Protestants believe that works are integral and vital to salvation. Now, we have problems. Sometimes we have to correct our own people because they misunderstand. So I'm not complaining when I say that Council Trent misunderstood. Many evangelicals misunderstand. But you do need to understand that, that historic biblical Reformation Protestantism believes in works as integral and vital to the Christian life. The difference is that we see works as a necessary consequence of our justification, Whereas Rome views works as a necessary contributor to justification. But 500 years ago this month, the Reformation was launched by Christians who believed that justification is through faith alone, but who also believed that sanctification, the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives for a growing holiness, that that was an equally necessary, a different, but a necessary part of salvation. Well, let me say this, if the Council of Trent in anathematizing Sola Fide distressed the Reformers by giving works a contributing role in justification, the more recent statements of Vatican II sound even louder alarms. For instance, under Vatican II, Rome makes a way, even for professing Muslims, apart from any overt embrace of Christ, to enter the kingdom of heaven. And by what means? Well, according to Lumen Gentium 16, even those who profess no faith in Christ at all, let me quote, who nevertheless seek God with a sincere heart and moved by grace, try in their actions to do his will as they know it through the dictates of their conscience, these too may attain eternal salvation. Well, what now in light of Vatican II do the words faith and grace even mean? When those who completely deny Jesus as Savior and who worship a false god, surely we're not going to say that the Quran is the word of God or the God of the Quran is a true God. Christians cannot say that. Well, how is it that we say that they may be justified apart from any knowledge of Christ, any faith in Christ, justified by their works? I dare say, Vatican II shows that if anything... The divide between Protestants and Catholics over faith and works in justification is even wider now than it was 500 years ago. Well, before I conclude, there's one more matter that I I have to consider to competently address this subject. And that is whether the righteousness of justification is imputed to the believer through faith in Christ or whether it is infused into the believer through sacramental grace. Now to the Protestant Reformation, the linchpin of their doctrine was the imputation of the righteousness of Christ through faith alone. And to the Council of Trent, it was their rejection of of imputation that lay at the heart of their condemnation. Now again, in large measure, this question of imputation versus infusion goes back to the earlier question. Is justification declarative or transformative? If justification declares a legal status, then righteousness is imputed to the believer through faith. If justification transforms the sinner's nature, then righteousness is an infused substance that enters inside to change him or her. Well, like the earlier discussion for the Reformers, the debate rested on the language of Scripture. All through Paul's teaching on justification, in fact you may have heard this terminology come up, Paul speaks of righteousness being credited to or reckoned to the believer. Now the key Greek word is logizomai. We get logistics and logarithm from logizomai. It comes from the world of mathematics and accounting. We use it today in banking. Banking. When money is deposited, it is credited to your account. The Greek word to describe that would be legizomai. Now, let me show you how Paul uses this in Philemon, verse 18. If you know Philemon, he's got his slave friend, Onesimus, who's going back to his master, Philemon, and Paul wants Philemon to give him his freedom. And in verse 18... He, he, he speaks of imputation using the very word he uses in Romans and elsewhere when he's speaking about any debts that the slave might owe his former master. Here's what Paul says. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Now notice that Paul did not owe Philemon anything. But he invites him, though he does not owe him, to charge the debt to his account. It's that word for reckoning or crediting imputing that Paul uses to explain justification. If we can go back briefly to Romans 4 where we're considering Abraham's justification some form of the word legizomai occurs no less than eight times. Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. Verse 3. To workers their wages were counted as their due. Verse 4. In verse 5, when God justifies the ungodly, they are credited with righteousness through faith. Before Abraham was even circumcised, righteousness was imputed to him through faith. Verse 9, it is Paul teaches by reckoning, by crediting, by imputation, that the righteousness of Christ comes to believers through faith. One of the key verses that Reformed Christians use to Uh, Understand imputation is 2 Corinthians 5.21. Let me read the verse first. Paul says, For our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now that's an important verse. It's kind of a Rosetta Stone for this doctrine. Because Paul says that the same way that our sins get to Jesus, his righteousness gets to us. And so we ask the question, How did our sins get to Jesus? How did Jesus bear our sins on the cross? Were our sins infused into him? So that Jesus became by his nature a sinner? Meganoito, Paul would say. God forbid that we would say that. Did Jesus participate in our sins? He absolutely did not participate in our sins. So by what manner did our sins get to Jesus on the cross? The answer is by imputation. He was credited with the guilt of our sin. And in the same manner we receive righteousness from him we are made to be the righteousness of god in the same way that he who knew no sin was made to be sin not by infusion not by participation directly but by the imputation of the righteousness of christ through faith alone now you see the imputation you see here's why i have to bring it up first of all it's so precious to us but also Here's our real answer to the charge that justification through faith alone is a legal fiction. Remember that accusation? Here you have God declare he's supposed to be just, and he's going to declare people who are not righteous, he's going to declare them righteous. How can that be? Well, the answer is that God does not, in fact, justify on the basis of a lie but rather based on the perfectly fulfilled righteousness to his Son that has been credited to us, to our account, through faith alone. In fact, I'd like to put it this way. justification through faith alone is in fact a form of works righteousness we are justified only god cannot declare us just unless the the works of His law have been perfectly fulfilled we believe that a sinner is justified by works alone we just don't believe that we are the ones who did the works jesus is the one who did the works and what we receive through faith alone is the perfect and the finished work of christ not only dying on the cross to pay the penalty of our sin, but fulfilling the obligations of God's law on our behalf. Well, let me conclude by saying it is little appreciated, after all this exegetical and doctrinal work, that at his heart, the Protestant Reformation was not ultimately, was not inwardly motivated merely or even primarily by doctrine or exegesis. It was a pastoral movement, It was a movement motivated primarily for the spiritual well-being of the sheep in Christ's fold. This is why Martin Luther, that little-known monk, it was enjoyable to hear the description of it, absolutely right. Uh, He didn't know he was launching a Reformation. I would argue he wasn't. God was launching a Reformation. But why did he nail the 95 Theses to the door? In fact, one of my favorite questions is, why is Reformation Day, we celebrate it every year, why is Reformation Day on Halloween? It's not because we're creepy. It's not because Presbyterian and Lutheran kids get to celebrate Halloween, unlike our Baptist neighbor's kids. Uh, It's because Martin Luther acted on All Hallows' Eve because of what was about to happen on All Saints' Day. And he was deeply grieved that the peasantry of northern Europe, desperate for spiritual hope, were giving what little money they have in order to buy a, a hope through you know the story of Tetzel, a hope for the deliverance from purgatory. They were in spiritual bondage, and the sheep, Luther thought, were being callously sheared. It was a pastoral motive that drove him, and likewise, this whole question of justification. It involves yes, it involves questions of exegesis. Yes, it involves theological dogma. But at its heart, it is an essential matter for Christian living. For the let me say, and here's what it is: for the reformers, justification through faith alone served the cause that Cardinal, Cardinal Bellarmine derided as the chief heresy of the Reformation. What was that cause? It was the assurance of salvation. That's the cash value to Protestants. That was the cash, that was the the heart, the lived reality. It was the heresy of the Reformation, according to the chief theologian of of the generation of Trent, the assurance of salvation. And Rome, ever since the Council of Trent, denies the assurance of salvation apart from a rare direct revelation from God. And yet the Reformers did not teach As they were accused, they did not teach a boastful, it wasn't a boastful thing, as if they had some kind of mathematical certainty through professing the gospel. Instead, the reformers held, in the words of John Calvin, the confident hope of salvation, both enjoined by his word and founded upon it. You see, quite in contrast to one who looks within himself, for sufficient proof of justification, and therefore can have no assurance of entering into heaven. Paul laid his faith directly the Christ and his sovereign ability to save. I've mentioned 2 Timothy 1.12 already, but listen to the assurance that rings throughout it. I know whom I believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have entrusted to him until that day. Or, or in the terms of Romans 5 1, which I also quoted, those who have peace with God in the present are those who, with Paul, look back on a completed, past, finished justification, forever accomplished by Christ alone, grounded on God's grace, apart from any merit in the Christian, received through faith alone. Now, Trent anathematized the reformers for their doctrine of assurance. They described certainty in God's word for salvation, I quote, as a vain confidence that is alien from all godliness. And they insisted instead that no one can know, I quote from Trent, no one can know with a certainty of faith, which cannot be subject to error, that he has obtained the grace of God. Well, let me... As I draw near to my close, quote a a great evangelical Anglican, J.C. Ryle, as he gives, here's our answer in his words. It cannot be wrong to feel confidently confidently in a matter where God speaks unconditionally, to believe decidedly where God promises decidedly, to have a sure persuasion of ardent and peace when we rest on the word and the oath of him who never changes. You see, the Protestant Reformation takes Jesus at his word, and we do not believe that doing so is either vain or ungodly. And what did our Lord promise? My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hands. John 10, 27-28. Jesus pledged, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. John 6.40 Paul embraced these same promises with an assurance that Protestants hold dear. He said, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us believers from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8.38-39 The assurance of salvation, founded on justification through faith alone, as taught in the scripture, was the pastoral motive of the Protestant Reformation. Just as it was the fleecing of the fearful presence who motivated Luther to nail his theses on October 31st, 2017. And not only does assurance convey comfort, but it energizes zeal. It's believers who are sure of their standing before God, who will work most for Christ and pursue most passionately a God-glorifying holiness. Not those who cringe in fear over the uncertainty of their grace. Now, to be sure, we humbly regret our ongoing sins. Yet we are certain of righteousness in and because of Christ alone. J.C. Ryle concludes that the assured Christian does not vex his soul with doubts about his own pardon and acceptance. He looks at the everlasting covenant sealed with blood, at the finished work, the never broken word of his Lord and Savior, and therefore counts his salvation a settled thing. And thus he is able to give undivided attention to the work of the Lord. Well, it is that pastoral and personal consideration, together with our sense of duty to uphold the word of God in the Bible, that is what divides the Reformation from Rome, even after 500 years. And we gratefully, and I mean that very sincerely, we gratefully embrace public collaboration for Christian ethics, and we respect the courage and the integrity off of the intellectual contributions of Roman Catholics. We cheerfully labor beside you for life and human dignity. But apart from a shared faith in the Bible's Doctrine of justification, not merely through a form of words apart from their actual meanings. We cannot embrace spiritual union with Rome, much to our sorrow. It's true that the darkness of our times calls for the unity of all those who would name Jesus as Lord. May God grant That the good news of a free justification to sinners, through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, may it break down the barriers and bring us home together in the care of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you.